Amen. Begin this morning by asking a question. How does a doctor determine if someone is dead? How does a doctor determine if someone is dead? Three more questions to help us unpack that question. Does a doctor need to check every bodily system to know that someone is dead? Does a doctor need to examine every organ in the body to know that someone is dead? Does a doctor need to evaluate every bodily cell to know that someone is dead? No. A doctor determines that someone is dead by looking for several key signs of death, right? Check the pulse. Is the heart beating? Listen for breath. Are the lungs expanding? Watch the body. Has the color changed or rigor mortis set in or decomposition begun? Here's, here's my point in the illustration. A doctor looks for key signs of death to determine that the whole body is dead. I'm going I'm to connect back to that illustration in a moment. But before I, I bring the illustration to a point, let me step back and remind us where we're at in Romans 1.18 to 3.20. In Romans 1.18 to 3.20, the Apostle Paul is making an argument regarding fallen man's state. He wants to convince us that all humanity in Adam is two things. Number one, that all humanity in Adam is enslaved to sin. This is Romans 3.9. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And therefore, number two, he wants to convince us that all humanity in Adam is unable to be justified before God by the law. In other words, the Holy Spirit through Paul reveals in Romans 1.18 to 3.20 natural man's state. Humanity in Adam is in, a is in a natural state of being desperate and wicked under sin's dominion because of God's just judgment. We said last week that Paul's making this point in Romans 1.18 to 3.20 because he wants to convince us of the reality of Romans 1.16 to 17. The gospels, the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness that comes from God is being revealed from faith, for faith, just as it has been written. The one who is righteous by faith shall live. Paul is trying to convince us by this truth about man's desperate and wicked state that the gospel is essential and necessary for our salvation, for our church, for our labors in evangelism to, to our home and to our neighbors, and for our labors in missions among the nations. And ultimately, he's trying to convince us that the gospel is essential for the fulfillment of what God has planned for all creation. Fallen man's natural state is so desperate, so wicked, so dead, that he is unable to save himself, even with help from others. Fallen man's natural state is so desperate, so wicked, so dead, 
that he cannot be or do or even want what God requires of him. That's what this language of righteousness is all about. God is a righteous judge. What must we be? What must we do to receive life in his presence rather than condemnation and death? And the bad news in Romans 1.18-3.20 is that man's natural state, so desperate, so wicked, so dead, that he cannot be or do or even want what God requires to give life. And that's true even when the path is laid out in front of him. The call to worship this morning was from Psalm 106. Part of the point of Psalm 106 is God saves his people. He puts them pretty much back in the Garden of Eden. He gives them a law, tells them how to obey. And most of Psalm 106 is a story of how Israel turned from God's ways to their own. How they traded God in, exchanged Yahweh, the one who saved them again and again, for the dead idols of the nations. For Paul, it's not as though humanity in Adam is a drowning man whom a lifeguard can pull out from the waters and revive before death comes. It's not as though humanity in Adam is a, is a man experiencing chest pain who can take a few nitroglycerin tablets to stave off the heart attack until help arrives. The Holy Spirit through Paul reveals in Romans 118 to 320 that humanity in Adam is dead, not dying, deader than dead, like dried out bones, bleached by the sun, picked clean by the scavengers, scattered in the desert. It's a biblical image from Ezekiel 37. If man is to live, a doctor can go to an almost dead man and save him. A human doctor can go to a man whose heart has stopped beating and defibrillate him and, and get it back into its rhythm. But if humanity is that dead, life is beyond what any man can do. Life for humanity that dead will require the almighty power of God, the only one who raises the dead. If man is to be justified before God and delivered from his just wrath, it will require not a righteousness that we can be or do or earn on our own. It will require the righteousness that comes from God, given to us as a gift in Christ, that we receive and rest upon by faith as a gift, and not as wages that we work for and earn. This reality is why the apostle states in Romans 1, 15 to 17 that the gospel is the heartbeat of his ministry and will remain so for as long as he ministers, wherever he ministers. Through the gospel and its proclamation, and only through the gospel and its proclamation, the almighty God exerts his sovereign power to save his people from death, from Adam, from idolatry, from exile and to bring us into Christ. And through the gospel, and only through the gospel, does our God exert his sovereign power, not only to bring us into Christ, but to sustain us by his power until the end. That's Romans 1.16. You can also say with Romans 1.17, in the gospel, and only in the gospel, the righteous God reveals his righteousness in Christ by his spirit to our hearts, so that we might receive his righteousness by faith, rest upon it continually as a gift from him in Christ for us, 
And on account of Christ's righteousness, this righteousness that God credits to us in Christ by faith, the righteous God declares us just before him, worthy of his presence, having fulfilled what he requires. Now, how does Paul convince us, which is a way of saying, how does the Holy Spirit through Paul reveal to us that all humanity in Adam is dead? That is, what does it mean that humanity in Adam is dead? It means that, we're, that humanity in Adam is dominated by sin, Romans 3, 9, and unable to do or be or earn what God requires, Romans 3.20. Does the apostle need to check every culture in human history to prove that humanity is dead? Does he need to examine every tribe? Does he need to evaluate every individual in Adam before he can pronounce death? No. Like a doctor, the apostle demonstrates man's desperate and wicked state under sin's dominion, under sin's power, because of God's judgment, by identifying a key sign of death. That's what the apostle's doing here in Romans 1, 26 to 27. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the apostle identifies same-sex sexual immorality as a key sign of death, demonstrating all humanity's desperate and wicked state in Adam. Let me explain with the illustration. Just as the lack of a pulse speaks not only to the state of the heart or even the cardiovascular system, but to the state of the whole body, so too the abandonment of God's good created design for human sexuality speaks not only to the state of an individual or a movement or a political party or a nation, but to the desperate and wicked state of all humanity, every individual, every nation in Adam. And just as the presence of decomposition in one part of the body reflects that the whole body is dead, so too the presence of same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates that all humanity in Adam is dead, in desperate need of God's power in the gospel to save us, in desperate need of God's righteousness in the gospel to justify us. Went to the Atlanta History Center this week and saw two forms of human pride. You might call it a progressive form of human pride and a traditionalist form of human pride. The progressive form of human pride was all throughout the History Center, boasting in uh, immorality as identity, calling things like same-sex sexual immorality and, and transgenderism good, badges of honor, things we should boast in. That's one kind of human pride that was there. There was another kind of human pride that was there, though. They had a picture on the wall, I think it was during the 96 Olympics, of a group of protesters protesting with vile words about fellow image bearers who were committing acts of same-sex sexual morality. And you understand that second form of pride is like the kidney saying to the non-beating heart, what's wrong with you? You're dead. If the heart's not beating, the kidney's dead too. Paul's purpose in Romans 1, 26 to 27 is to help us recognize that all humanity in Adam is dead. And this is demonstrated 
by the existence of this key sign of death. You understand? There's no boasting. No boasting. We might summarize the message that the Spirit reveals through the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 26 to 27 in this way. Same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates man's desperate and wicked state under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. Let me read that one more time. This is the main message. Same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates man's desperate and wicked state under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. We're going to take that message in two parts. In verse 26, Paul restates the judgment of God. He made the point in verse 24. He makes it again in verse 26. And then in verse 27, really the second half of verse 26 to verse 27, he turns his attention to same-sex sexual morality as a demonstration that what he says about man's state under sin because of God's judgment is true. So let us direct our eyes and with them our hearts and minds to what God has spoken in Romans 1.26. For this reason, God gave them up unto dishonorable passions. As we come to verse 26, we can just simply say, in some ways, this is just a restatement of verse 24. Because of man's idolatrous response to what God reveals about himself in creation, God has acted. What has God done? He's justly judged man. How has God judged man? By putting him under the dominion, the control of his sinful desires. I just want to pause here to note, God is immeasurably wiser than us. The Apostle Paul is not immeasurably, immeasurably wiser than us, but I'm confident he's wiser than all of us in this room. And so if God, through Paul, determined to repeat in verse 26 almost immediately what he had just revealed in verses 24 to 25, we'd better not neglect what he has repeated. And the main phrase in verse 26 contains the heart of what Paul states first in verse 24, repeats in verse 26, and states one more time in verse 28. Look at verse 24. God gave them over. Verse 26. God gave them over. Verse 28. God gave them over. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, God reveals through Paul what God has done to man. And what has God done? He has justly judged man. How? By putting all humanity in Adam under sin's dominion. We can be confident that this is Paul's point because he's going to tell us at the end of his argument in Romans 3.9, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And if we're still not confident of his point, he's going to repeat it in Romans 11.32. God imprisoned all, both Jews and Gentiles, unto disobedience. Here's the concept. Just as God judged Israel time and again by giving them over to their enemies... You see this in, we, we read the end of Psalm 106, but if you were to read Psalm 106, verse 41, it says, He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Same concept here. Just as God judged Israel time and again by giving them over to the power of their enemies who oppressed them, and ruled over them, 
as God's judgment against them in a greater, a more expansive way. God judged all humanity, both Israel and the nations, by giving man over to the control of his sinful desires, which flow forth like a river from his idolatrous heart. So we saw in verse 24. Where do these desires come from? These wicked wants, sinful desires, these lusts? They come from the idolatrous heart of sinful man. Look at how Paul connects now verse 26 to verse 25. Look at the text, passage, God's word. Inspired by the Spirit, Paul writes, for this reason. In other words, what Paul has just said in verse 25 provides the reason for what God has done in verse 26. Verse 25, fallen man exchanged the truth about God for the lie. They were worshipped. They serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. What's the implication? For doing our autopsy on natural man, what's the cause of death? Idolatry. The root sin is idolatry. Man's fallen heart doesn't want God. Romans 8, 7. Man's natural heart prefers deadly and empty self-worship to the life-giving worship of the true God, in whose glorious image man was made to reflect this God, to represent his reign, to worship him, to enjoy him forever. For this reason, in verse 26, reminds us that natural man's problem is not ignorance or lack of education. We won't find salvation for ourselves or our children by securing the best education or by getting more education or by teaching ourselves out of death or idolatry or exile. Natural man's problem, and this is important when we talk about an issue like same-sex sexual immorality that, that intersects so closely with our culture. Natural man's problem is not primarily political or legal or parental, or social. Natural man's problem is his idolatrous heart that wants to enslave itself to anything and everything in creation rather than give itself to the glorious and life-giving God who made man and all else that exists. And I could give an example there, but you don't need me to because you know the truth of what I just said you know that natural man's fallen heart wants to enslave itself to anything and everything in creation except God. Because all of us were once in Adam, and that's how we lived. Because even those of us who have been brought out of Adam into Christ recognize that sin remains, and we have this propensity within us to enslave ourselves to creation. Food, drink, sex, TV, whatever it is, rather than God. And in response to man's idolatry, look at verse 26. What did God do? God gave them over. In other words, God actively judged man by giving him what he wanted, by putting him under the, the power, the control of these wicked wants that flow forth from his heart so that he might be enslaved, just as he desires to anything and everything but God. 
the only one who can satisfy him and give him life, the only ruler worthy of his worship, of his love, of his honor, of his life. And doesn't this begin to help us breathe in the midst of this culture? I hope this illustration isn't too trite. But I think about Sonic. If you, if you played Sonic when you were a younger child, or maybe you're, you're a child, they've, they've reintroduced the older games. You might remember those levels where Sonic is underwater, and he's, and he's suffocating, and then he gets that bubble and he can breathe. That's, that's how biblical truth ought to be for us. We live in a culture filled with lies. We live as God's people in exile, sojourners among idols, and, and sin still remains in our hearts, and biblical truth comes to us like a breath of air that <gasps> lets us breathe, lets us live. Because we live in a culture that constantly catechizes us to believe that true life is found in following our hearts wherever they lead us. We live in an age that teaches us to be skeptical of all authority but our own. To distrust every ruler but our own desires. In Adam, we are now, to quote Lady Gaga, born this way. With an innate and humanly inescapable desire to reject God, to resist his king, to transgress his law, and to rule ourselves. Happily convinced against all the evidence that only this path leads to life. And God has judged natural man by putting us under the control of this very sinful desire. Such is natural man's desperate and wicked state. But I want to say we have been deceived by our culture. Our own hearts mislead us even as our cultural institutions feed us the very lie we long by nature to believe. To be ruled by what our natural hearts want is death, not life. Autonomy. Autonomy, self-rule, self-determination, self-definition, self-worship, self-fulfillment is harsh, oppressive slavery, not liberation. Because by nature we are cruel, oppressive, deadly, foolish masters even of ourselves, especially of ourselves. I don't want me to be my own king. I need a better king than me. I need a wiser king than me, a holier king than me, a kinder king than me. Unqualified self-rule is not liberation. It's the worst thing that could happen to us. To be put under the control of what we naturally want is a terrifying judgment. But this is what God has done. He reveals this truth in Romans 1.24, 1.26, And also, if, if you go home and read Psalm 106, it's one of the reasons we chose it as the call to worship. See the same truth. God has condemned man in Adam to follow his heart. To be dominated by the sin that flows forth like a raging river from his idolatrous heart. And carried away into the doom of doing what his wicked heart wants. I illustrated this truth last week in Romans 1.24. 
now repeated in 126, by means of Niagara Falls. Like a fool, man jumped over the railing and wanted to swim toward the middle of the Niagara River so that he might be happily swept away in the flow of his wicked desires. And God justly judged man, not merely by letting him go, but by putting him right in the very middle of that river where the waters flow at full force so that he might be willingly and inescapably swept over the falls and onto the boulders below. The Niagara River in the illustration represents natural man's sinful desires, wicked wants, the lusts that come forth naturally from his disordered heart. You might remember from verse 24, we see it again in verse 26, what is Niagara Falls? In other words, to what doom are our own hearts sweeping us toward? Falls, in verse 24, represents sexual immorality as God's judgment upon man. Under the control of his lusts, man so desirous of dishonoring the God in whose image he is made dishonors his own body by the sexual immorality he desires and does. And again, we talked about the justice of God's judgment in this. It's rooted in our identity, not as independent beings, but as those made in the image of God. Again, I hope this illustration isn't too trite. If a son looks at his parents and says, you're ugly, he can't insult them without insulting himself. He's been made by them. He's been made in their image. A, a statue of a human ruler can't rebel against that ruler, desecrate him without des desecrating himself. And that's the justice of God's judgment. Humanity wants to desecrate God. We're living images of the living God. And so in our rejection, our desecration, our attempts to desecrate God, we just end up desecrating ourselves. God has put us there as judgment for our idolatry. But if we look at verse 26, Paul isn't merely restating this point. Look at verse 26. He's explaining the point further in verse 26 by substituting two words. In verse 26 for one word in verse 24. Look at verse 24. God gave them up unto impurity. A broad word for moral corruption, especially sexual immorality. Verse 26. God gave them up unto, and now we read, dishonorable passions. What does that mean? It's two words that refer specifically to degraded, corrupted, Shameful sexual feelings or affections or attractions. Let us follow Paul closely here. Number one, Romans 1, 18 to 20. God revealed himself in creation as the almighty creator, summoned all people to worship him as the fountain of blessing, the, the river of joy. Man responded idolatrously, Rejecting what God revealed, refusing to worship him, and choosing to worship rocks shaped like animals, wood carved like birds, and ourselves. Romans 1, 21 to 23. So God judged man, verse 24, by putting him under the control of his sinful desires, that they might carry him into sexual immorality. And now in verse 26, Paul wants us to understand God's judgment extends not only to what man does sexually, 
but even to what he feels and desires. We understand then the enormity of what the Spirit reveals here through Paul. No person can say, God made me this way. I'm just naturally attracted sexually to fill in the blank. So it must be good because I feel it and God made me. No. What the Spirit reveals through Paul, look at verse 26, is that passions. Again, that word means sexual feelings and attractions can be dishonorable and shameful. He's describing here what he will more clearly describe in the next verse. Dishonorable passions are those sexual feelings and attractions that go against what God has designed for human sexuality. As those who believe in creation, we want to say, yes and amen, God created man. God created man as an embodied being. God created man with emotions and and affections and attractions. Sex wasn't man's idea, it was God's. And God intended these passions as the desire and the enjoyment of one man and of one woman joined together by covenant love and marriage for each other that produces physical union and procreation. That's what God intended when he made us with these passions and attractions. But here Paul reminds us that perversions and corruptions of these God-given, good, created sexual passions in and for marriage exist among man as a consequence of what God has done to judge our idolatry. In other words, dishonorable sexual passions exist among man because his sinful desires dominate him, corrupting what he feels and wants as a consequence of God's just judgment against his idolatry. Again, you see the justice of this, don't you? If you try to replace the sun with a planet, the planets will become disordered and consumed and destroyed. Man, by his idolatry, tried to rip out the sun from the solar system and put himself in the middle. So God has judged us by giving us that order. And that kind of order results in what? Disorder and death. When man turned from God to idolatry, God judged man's idolatry by ensuring that the disorder of his idolatry extended to every part of his being. Sexual immorality, including here in verse 26, perverted and corrupted sexual feelings and attractions demonstrate man's wicked and desperate state under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. Now, now some of you feel this in your hearts already. You're, 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 about, you're, you're objecting. Part of it's right. Part of it's because of the cultural environment where you, you want to say, Nate, wait a second. We've got to be empathetic. We've got to be compassionate. There's an element of that that's very true, isn't there? We're not self-righteous, perfect people. We are those who were once ourselves enslaved by sinful passions and pleasures. We're 1 Corinthians 6 people. Such were some of us. But we were saved. But also, let us not forget what God's truth reveals here. When a person experiences sexual feelings and attractions that do not accord with God's design, 
what that person needs is not to fulfill those passions or, or merely compassion from us, but to be kept, to be delivered from those passions by God's power exerted through our gospel ministry to them and his grace in Christ. To return to the illustration with which I began, like the absence of a pulse or the presence of decay demonstrating the body's death, sexual immorality, including perverted and corrupted sexual feelings and attractions, demonstrates natural man's wicked and desperate state under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. What Paul's going to explain next is that same-sex sexual immorality is a particularly clear demonstration. It's a particularly clear way to see that all humanity is under sin. It's like taking a pulse to know if someone's dead. Direct your attention with me toward the rest of verse 26 and verse 27. Paul begins with the word for. In other words, he's about to explain or ground what he just said. How do we know it's true, Paul? How do we know that God's done this, that God's judged man for his idolatry by giving him over into dishonorable passions? Well, the evidence comes now. For their females, Paul uses the word female there, not the word woman, because he's, he's wanting us to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. The ESV has women. For their females exchange natural relations, that is, God's created design for sexual function, for those relations that are against the created design. In the same way, the males, having abandoned the created sexual function of females, were consumed, burned up by their own lust for one another. Males with males committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates man's wicked and desperate state under sin's dominion, because of God's judgment. I want to just begin in this section by clarifying the evidence that Paul is putting forth. A number of false teachers have put forth this idea that Paul's not referring to all same-sex sexual immorality here. He's just talking about excessive or abusive same-sex sexual practices in the ancient world. And based on this argument, these false teachers contend that the Bible does not condemn all same-sex sexual desires and acts. Again, they're, they're saying, Paul, Paul's not talking about all same-sex sexual acts and desires. He, he's just talking about abusive ones, excessive ones in the ancient world. It's wrong, clearly. Three reasons we can see it here. Number one, Paul uses the word male and female along with the word natural to bring us back to Genesis 1 and 2. In other words, Paul is rooting his argument here not in Greco-Roman culture, but in what God did in creation and revealed in Genesis when he made sex and marriage. Second reason we know this is about all same-sex sexual immorality and not just excessive abusive practices from the ancient world. Second reason. Verse 27, the third phrase, ESV begin, begins it with men committing, begins in the original with this, word front, this phrase fronted, males with males. In other words, Paul's making clear that he's talking about all same-sex sexual acts and desires between adult males, not merely abusive or exploitative acts. And number three, Paul begins with reference to same-sex sexual immorality among females. 
And, and in some sense, then, it's like a merism. When the Bible talks about heaven and earth, it means everything in between. When Paul here references females and males, he's saying all kinds of same-sex sexual desires and attractions and acts are wrong and immoral and demonstrate man's death in Adam. In verses 26 to 27, the apostles putting forward all same-sex sexual immorality, all same-sex sexual desires, attractions, and acts among men and women as evidence. Evidence of what? In other words, when we look out in history and in the world and in our own culture, what does the existence of same-sex sexual immorality in human history and in our culture demonstrate? We know the arguments that are around. Some would argue same-sex sexual immorality, they wouldn't call it that, demonstrates human progress, cultural liberation. Others would argue it, it demonstrates only the moral decay of one society or only the decay of one culture. Still others might argue it doesn't demonstrate anything. It's a cultural construct. It's just a natural reality. But for the Apostle Paul, inspired by the very Spirit of God as he writes to reveal the truth to us, same-sex sexual immorality clearly demonstrates something. What does it demonstrate? That all humanity is under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. In other words, if you were to challenge Paul by saying, Paul, you're a little fanatical. You want to say that all humanity is under sin. You want to say that all humanity is enslaved by sin because of God's judgment. Prove it. Paul would point to the existence of same-sex sexual immorality, including both same-sex sexual attractions and same-sex sexual acts, as clear evidence to establish his claim. In verses 26 to 27, Paul is a doctor, and we are, in a sense, his medical students. He's showing us that man is dead by pointing to this key sign of death. Same-sex sexual immorality is a sign of all humanity's death in Adam and domination by sin and condemnation by God. Church, we must ask here, do we perceive of same-sex sexual immorality as Paul does? Not merely as the personal decisions of individuals, not merely as the ideology of one movement, not merely as a political or cultural or legal or familial issue, but like a key sign of death indicating that the whole body is dead as theological evidence. Theological evidence that all humanity in Adam is under sin's dominion because of God's judgment. Do not be conformed, the apostle will write later in this letter, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For the Christian, God's word through Paul, here in verses 26 to 27, must shape and determine how we perceive and interpret same-sex sexual morality. And for the non-Christian, I ask this. Could it, be could it be possible that you have been deceived by your own heart and by the cultural institutions that have shaped you? I lived in China, Beijing, China, for three years. I taught in their classrooms. And there was lies constantly everywhere. To give you one example, on Chinese maps, Taiwan 
is colored in as part of China. And when you go to the airport, the lie is so extensive that at the airport, they have domestic and international terminals. And if you want to go on a flight to Taiwan, do you know what terminal it's in? The domestic terminal. And as, as foreign teachers, we were not free in the classroom to ever say anything about Taiwan or Tiananmen Square or anything like that. Non-Christian friend, is it possible that you have been deceived similarly on this issue? What if the apostles' words are true? Because what the apostle claims about same-sex sexual immorality hinges upon the beauty, the wisdom, the goodness of God's created design for male and female. I'm not putting that in the passage. It's there three times. The apostle refers to the created sexual design in verse 26 with that phrase, natural relations. Verse 26, that phrase, nature. And verse 27, that phrase, natural relations again. These words don't refer to what comes naturally. They don't merely refer to what we see in nature. They refer to the creator's purpose and design for human sexuality. God created male and female in his image. Both male and female are human beings, image bearers of the living God, whom God created to glorify him and to enjoy him. But male and female, I think this is obvious, are different kinds of human beings. This difference is seen most clearly in our sexual function. We were to try to define man and woman according to their sexual functions. Here's an attempt. It's not original to me. What is a man? What is a male? God created man or male as a kind of human being that has the potential to create life outside of himself. Kind of human being has the potential to create life outside of himself. He reflects his creator's design and purpose in his sexual function and anatomy. What is a woman, a female? God created woman or female as a kind of human being that has the potential to nurture life within herself. She reflects her creator's design and purpose in her sexual function and anatomy. I know there's some objection here. I'm speaking generally and of potential. Some will always be single. Some married couples will yearn for children and never have them. We know the grief that sterility and barrenness bring. Some of you know that deeply. But the very fact that barrenness brings grief confirms the goodness of God's created design. We can grieve that something shouldn't be the way it is only because we know the sweet goodness of what ought to be. And we might also point out that Jesus was the righteous man, the truest human that ever lived. And yet he was single his whole life, never entered into marriage, never had children of his own. Yes, the goodness and beauty and wisdom of our creator's intent is seen in the difference between male and female. But not only in the difference between male and female, we see the goodness in how he created these sexual differences to complement each other perfectly, such that male and female and their sexual function, anatomy, and purpose fit together to fulfill God's design for them and commission to them. Now we're backing up to Genesis 1 and 2. God created humanity as physical beings, embodied souls, to glorify him, how? By filling the earth with more of his living images. 
God created the male with the potential to create life outside of himself. God created the female with the potential to nurture life within herself. And God created marriage as a covenantal structure in which one man and one woman could come together in love for life to fulfill God's design in their sexual complementarity. And for Paul, this good, beautiful, wise design isn't something that needs to be argued for. It's just self-evident. And, and, and thinking about this good, wise design should cause us not to reject God and dishonor him, but to glorify God, to give him thanks, to honor him as our almighty and wise creator. And it's self-evident for Paul, I think, in two ways at least. Anatomically, male and female fit wonderfully together in a way that is impossible for a male to fit with a male or a female to fit with a female. And functionally, only male and female can fulfill one of God's primary purposes for sexuality, procreation. Two males or two females will never produce children. To pretend otherwise is to deceive ourselves, to play act, to harm the child, the parent from whom the child was taken, and those pretending that the child is theirs. God's design is so good, isn't it? My wife is a midwife. We're constantly thinking about birth or, or working toward it. We're constantly thinking about birth in our home. She, she spends her days studying about birth. We have four children of our own. And yet, don't, don't, don't you, whether you're a parent looking at your child or a child looking at your parent or looking at other families, don't you ever just stop and marvel at the goodness of God's design? How, how did they come from them? And, and, and what is happening in birth? And yeah, how does that happen? And how is it that two people can come together and a new person is made in God's image, created by God, and yet through them? It's marvelous. It's a mystery. It's wonderful. It should cause us to worship, rejoice. It should cause our mouths to drop open in awe at the goodness of our God. So why would man want to abandon his creator's good, joyous design for human sexuality? To do so is like trying to breathe dirt, to fly in the face of gravity, to live underwater, to become what we are not and can never be. That's Paul's point, isn't it? Same-sex sexual immorality is so irrational in light of God's good design that it demonstrates how enslaved man is to sin, to rebellion, to transgression. Man has been carried away by his sinful desires into this self-destructive immorality. Man cannot help but desire to desecrate himself and act to fulfill those desires. It's self-immolation. You remember in the, in the Vietnam War protests uh, in Vietnam when the monks would set themselves on fire as protest against, I think it was the South Vietnamese dictator? That's what same-sex sexual morality is. Paul says these people are so consumed, they're burned up by their lusts that dominate them. Their own hearts, what flows forth from it is like gasoline that burns them up, destroys themselves. Females trading in males for other females. Males abandoning females and being consumed, burned up by their lust for one another. 
such that they desecrate their own bodies and dishonor themselves. It's a dead end, literally, for the human race and for them. It's not what we were made for. It won't lead to lasting flourishing or pleasure or joy or life. There's no real union. There's no fruitfulness. There's only futility. And here's the key point. Same-sex sexual immorality involves wanting and loving futility over fruitfulness. Wanting and loving barrenness over blessing. Wanting and loving irreconcilable division and brokenness over the one flesh union God provides in true marriage. How do you explain its existence then? For Paul, such immorality is clear evidence that sin dominates and enslaves natural man because of God's judgment. Only man's idolatrous heart and the kind of judgment from God that Paul describes in verse 24 verse 26 and verse 28 can explain why man would want and feel and do such things. And I just say again, we are a 1 Corinthians 6 kind of people. Such were some of us. But we've been justified, sanctified by our God in Christ. Like the lack of a pulse or the presence of decay, same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates man's wicked and desperate state under sin's dominion because of God's judgment against his idolatry. It proves that man in Adam is dead to God and to the goodness of his ways. It proves that man in Adam is under sin, dominated by the wicked ones that flow forth from his idolatrous heart. Because God himself has put him under sin's dominion as judgment. Man in Adam, therefore, cannot earn or do or ever be what God requires of him for life. Because he does not want God and is unwilling and unable to submit to his good and life-giving ways. We understand the implication then, don't we, as we come to the end of this sermon? What God has done, only God can undo. And what is impossible with man, Luke 18, 18, verse 27, is what? Possible with God. The gospel is a message about what God has done definitively in Christ to save his people from our sins to propitiate, satisfy justice, to propitiate his wrath, and to give us righteousness as a gift, to free us from sin's enslaving power, and to free us to live in joyous fear and life-giving holiness before our creator and under the good reign of his anointed king. If same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates all humanity's death in Adam, those liberated, and kept from it by God's power in the gospel served to demonstrate the power of his grace, the abundance of his mercy, the sufficiency of his righteousness, the newness of resurrection life, and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't this why we can't compromise 
by affirming these same-sex sexual desires and acts as good? To do so is not merely to deny what God reveals about natural man's desperate and wicked state under sin because of God's judgment. It's also to deny the very great salvation which God has accomplished for us in Christ and applied to us by his death-raising spirit through the gospel and its proclamation. Like a key sign of death, same-sex sexual immorality demonstrates all humanity's wicked and desperate state under sin because of God's judgment. But not only this, it demonstrates the greatness of the salvation God accomplished in Christ for his sinful people, for us who were at one time like all humanity and Adam, slaves to various passions and pleasures, but were saved by God through our Lord Jesus Christ, not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. Provided in Christ with freedom from sin by Christ's death, righteousness before God, by Christ's life, so that having been justified by his grace, we too might now walk in the newness of life, presenting ourselves to God as those brought from death to life, and our bodies as instruments of righteousness. And then Paul says in Romans 6, I'm quoting from Titus 3 and then Romans 6, and then Paul says in Romans 6, because of what God has done for us in Christ, sin will no longer have dominion over us because we are now under grace. Through the gospel and its proclamation, God powerfully brings his people out of their wicked and desperate state in Adam and into this very great salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray then. And together proclaim the greatness of this salvation in song. Our great God. You demonstrate your own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners. Humanity and Adam under sin's dominion because of your judgment against our idolatry. While we were still sinners, dead, spiritually disabled, full of immorality and wickedness, Christ died for our sins. And so we praise you, O God. We've not clawed our ways out of death into life. We've not unwrapped.